1: Tonight on Climate One, we're discussing rising seas in the San Francisco Bay Area and what that means for our economy and communities. I'm Greg Dalton, and this program is sponsored by the San Francisco Foundation. If the global economy stopped spewing any carbon pollution today, the oceans would still rise at least a couple of feet this century because of the warming already baked into our atmosphere. Scientists debate how high the tides will rise and how fast, but there's no debate about the direction the water line is going, up. Over the next hour, we'll discuss what the Bay Area is doing to prepare for an expanding bay. How will we pay to protect shoreline roads, homes, and businesses? And what will happen to San Francisco and Oakland airports? Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to welcome four leaders planning a new relationship with our beloved Bay. Alicia Aguirre is former mayor of Redwood City and a member of the Metropolitan Transportation Commission. Larry Goldsband is executive director of the Bay Conservation and Development Commission. Julian Potter is Chief of Staff at San Francisco International Airport, and Laura Tam is Sustainable Development Policy Director at SPUR, the San Francisco Planning and Urban Research Association. Please welcome them to Climate One. So, Larry Goldsband, sea level rise happens slowly. Sea has risen eight inches in the last century. What's the big deal? Why should we care? Slowly rising seas.
3: Well, I think what we really need to think about when we think about time is chunks. We can always look at the guidance that says, you know, by the end of the century, it may rise as much as 55 inches. But how many of us are going to be around at the end of the century? Probably not many. And so what we're trying to figure out is how we can communicate the issues surrounding rising sea level by actually asking people to look at it in time chunks. What's going to happen during the next 10 years, and what should we do about, say, the 30 years after that? What would then happen in the 30 years after that, and how would we think about, say, the next 50 years? Because I think if we try to imagine from now to the end of the century, much less beyond that, we're all going to just be paralyzed. Laura
1: Tam, what is the governments and the companies in the Bay Area preparing to, to not be paralyzed by this?
0: Well, we've seen a lot of activity in just the last five years in terms of people becoming more aware of the issue of rising sea levels. We've seen a lot of uh, local governments preparing climate action plans that include adaptation activities. So not just trying to stop climate change, which of course is extremely important, but preparing for its effects of which sea level rise is a big one for the Bay Area, as you all know. Um, So we've seen a uh, a lot of projects Uh, popping up around the Bay Area, trying to look at the challenges of rising sea levels. Where will they be in the next 50 years to the next 100 years? What can we do about um, preparing to build resilience into the shoreline? How can we protect ecosystems that are out there in the Bay that are worthy of protection as well? And you're seeing a lot of people really wrestling with, I think, what the biggest challenge of sea level rise presents, which is how are we going to make decisions about this? There's no governance precedent for dealing with sea level rise. So it's a it's a vexing climate challenge that I think you're starting to see that conversation building and growing around the Bay Area. Um, and it's it's encouraging to see the dialogue.
1: Alicia, Gary, you're on the front lines, Redwood City, right there on the Bay, there's a port. Uh, San Mateo has some, the most property of any county in the state, uh, most at risk. Uh, so what is, What is Redwood City doing to get ready for this?
2: I think you mentioned it. San Mateo County has probably the most amount of money to lose or the biggest losses in any of the counties in the Bay Area. Think about what's in San Mateo County when you have the airports, when you have all of the infrastructure, all the housing, um, the cities like Foster City, like Redwood Shores, when you have um, the Googles, the Facebooks, everything that's around the area. What are we doing in order to take care of that? Because it's still a as it was mentioned before, it's still an unknown. So the people that are there or the infrastructure or the companies are still battling with this idea. So I think what, what cities need to do, not only in my role as on a council, but also in Metropolitan Transportation Commission, but how are we actually preparing for that? What kind of structures are we allowing to be built? What are the size of the levies? How much investment can we put and get from companies that are already there? Because when you look at the maps, it's going to go past the 101, and when you look at everything that's going to happen in that area, it's kind of scary, and it takes San Mateo County quite, it puts it halfway into the ocean. And, you know, it's a regional issue, so it's working with all of the cities. We have a lot of flooding in certain parts of Redwood City, and so we have to work with all of the cities that contribute to that flooding that ends in Redwood City. So it's working on a regional issue because it's not just fixing what's happening in Redwood City, it's fixing what's happening all along the Bay and along the coast as well. And how do you work with developers and um, politicians and county government in order to look at the different pieces and say, this is what we can do and we can add to that piece. And what at what level are we going to do it?
1: Let's talk about San Francisco Airport. A lot of people fly in and out of there. It's a huge economic engine, Julian Potter. Uh, those runways are very close to the Bay. Uh, what are you doing to protect them from sea-level rise?
4: Thanks, Greg. Uh, yes, the runways are close to the bay. They have been for you know the last 85 years since the uh, airport has been there. So we've been well aware of the positioning, and we've been building uh, barriers along the shoreline for the last 30 years, some concrete barriers, rock and fill, other vinyl barriers. To date, no, no flooding has occurred on the runways um, due to the tidal surges. But... Although not being the scientist, we are taking this all very seriously. And so we are in the middle of a two-year, $500,000 coastal adaptation study, a structural engineering study. We're looking at the 8.1 miles of shoreline. And we're going to plan for three events, the mid-century, the end of the century. But most importantly probably to us is the 1% chance that we could have a storm event similar to Hurricane Sandy. I mean, that's in our sights right now.
1: And what happens if that happens at SFO? Power well, goes out, runways underwater.
4: Yeah, um, right now we have, um, we have our own wastewater treatment plants and an industrial wastewater plant and we have uh, underground storm drains and we have pumps. So we could flush the runway. Runways are built. A lot of the systems on a runway obviously are waterproof. So you know, we would be able to clear the runways uh, fairly quickly. Um, But that doesn't mean that we're not looking at it, because today we do have some gaps in the shoreline. And so, you know, I think we would be operational fairly quickly, as was LaGuardia. But uh, they did sustain damage there, and we want to make sure that we uh, put in place plans now so that we don't sustain the kind of damage that they did.
1: So you could make SFO a fortress, but it's no good if people can't get there on the 101 because the 101's underwater. So Alicia Gary, you're on the Metropolitan Transportation Commission. Uh, th- this is one of the hardest parts of this problem is no jurisdiction can solve this themselves. People have to work together. That's hard for people and humans. So, uh,
2: you know, one of the things that we did is the Plan Bay Area, and, and that's been a huge effort uh, with nine Bay Area counties that put together this plan on what we are building today is actually infill, it's high density, it's in transportation. But yes, the 101, there are improvements happening in different parts of it, but it is, it would be a catastrophe if that roadway, and as you mentioned, uh, a bridge to the airport or to other areas wouldn't happen. So the whole plan is about infrastructure and is about high density and it's it's infill and it's away from, from all of the, what we call the Bay and of course the Gulf and I mean, the ocean. Does Caltrans
1: get this? Because we've had a lot of headlines recently about <laughs> Caltrans and the Bay Bridge.
2: I mean, do they get climate change over at Caltrans? Caltrans, yes, definitely. Um, Caltrans is, is part of the MTC, and we have been working with them. They were part of this plan. They were part of all the work that we've been doing on the plan barrier. This was a plan that took us nine hours, nine years, and so they are they are partnering. But you know, it's groups like MTC and other. Uh, transportation organizations that are actually having MOUs to work on these kinds of issues. So MTC is working with Caltrans, working with others, in order to mitigate some of the issues and to look at how we address the issues.
1: Larry Goldsman, you look at the entire bay, you work for a state agency. What are the greatest risk areas? Who's most at risk around the bay from storm
3: surge, sea level rise? Well, it really depends upon how you define who is. Uh, Alicia is totally correct. If you take a look at the bay, San Mateo County sort of has this target right on it. Because simply the way the topography works, if, if, if a storm comes, if levees break, when no matter what happens, the bay waters rise, San Mateo from essentially the airport south is probably more, is more at risk in terms of dollar value and in terms of people than just about anybody else. Um, on the other hand, when you look at the Bay, one of the great things about the Bay Area is that there are different topographies, different demographics, different geologies. I mean, no place is exactly the same. And so if you go north to Sonoma and Napa, you have a fundamentally different appreciation of the Bay than if you, say, head south to San Mateo or even over, say, to Newark, because it's a very different kind of place. Napa's done an amazing job with its Napa River project to try to work with the water, so instead of fighting the Mm -hmm. water. And and it's something that we can learn. And in San Mateo County, I, I should add, the San Francisco Creek project is trying to do basically the same thing, to account for water flow, to account for storm surge, and to ensure that we can live with water up to a certain extent, instead of simply putting a seawall up there and trying to fight it. So
1: how do we need to think about
3: change our relationship
1: with the bay and the water? There's the ocean, it doesn't change much, but what we're hearing about is gonna change a lot. We don't know how much or how fast, so we have to change our mindset, and that's a hard thing to do. So Larry Goldsman, how are we gonna change our concept of living near the water, which is a large reason why we're all here?
3: Right. We don't live in the ridge area. We don't live in the valley area. We live in the bay area. And I know that may sound really simple, but it's something that probably most of the people just take for granted. Well, we're not going to just simply take the bay for granted after the next 10, 20, 50 years, because it's obviously going to change. And from the way we tend to think about it as, as a state agency with regional jurisdiction, We're the first people to tell you that we don't exactly know what it's going to look like, but we can tell you how we need to get there. And the way we need to get there is, as Alicia says, regionally and sub-regionally. It's not simply the cities that are going to decide what the city is going to look like. The city is going to work with the cities next to it, and the county is going to work with the county next to it. We have nine counties that touch the bay and over 40 cities that touch the bay. And we're not going to be able to have one city work in a way that endangers another city. And so that's why regional agencies such as MTC, BCDC, and ABAG, and all those, that alphabet soup of regional agencies, have to learn to work together in not only a coordinated fashion, but a partnership to ensure that we can figure out the regional approach. Laura Tam, are there any specific projects or
1: cities that come to mind that are doing a good job on this? Is there anything built today where you can say, that's what our future is gonna look like?
0: I can think of quite a few actually, but I'll start with uh, our hometown here in San Francisco. We've been working on a project on Ocean Beach where there's been erosion events happening during major storms over the last, well, 20, 50 years, some of which have taken out infrastructure and important things that are assets to the community at Ocean Beach, we've worked with a lot of different city agencies and federal um, and state agencies as well to try to come up with a long-term vision for how that beach could be maintained as an asset, as a recreational place, as home to endangered species, uh, considering sea level rise and erosive events. So we've come up with sort of a design vision for what we could do. We're also this year starting a project looking at a section of the waterfront on the eastern side of San Francisco. Alameda County has really stepped up and done a lot of work with BCDC actually to look at what are the assets on their shoreline and what things are at risk. How can those things be protected in a way that's coordinated? Lots of different city and uh, county agencies working together on that project. There's an effort going on in Silicon Valley and Santa Clara County right now Larry mentioned the San Francisco Creek, which is in San Mateo County, well, San San Mateo and Santa Clara County, and they're they're managing a a project looking at not just sea level rise, but a river that flows into the bay that suffers from fluvial flooding. So when it pours, there's a lot of backup and a lot of flooding, both on the floodplain as well as in the bay. So. There's a lot of except Napa River, uh, the Corte Madera Creek in Marin, there's a lot going on. So, all these projects are sort of in the nascent design phases. I don't know if you could point to any of them and say this is how we adapt. And actually you probably wouldn't want to do that anyway because every shoreline is different. You, not any one strategy is a one size fits all kind of strategy, but uh, we have a lot of things in the works that I think we'll be able to look to in five, 10 years and say this is a good model for planning this is a good model for making a resilient shoreline.
1: And the model for San Francisco, the west side of San Francisco, I believe I saw it at Spur, Pacific Coast Highway goes behind the zoo. So Pacific Coast Highway is gonna change and go eastward, which raises the question of where we defend and where we retreat. So what are the places we're gonna say, okay, we gotta protect this, uh, but what are some other places where we're gonna sort of pull back from the coast and some people are gonna lose their homes or businesses? Larry Goldspan, how are we gonna make that decision?
3: The decision is going to be made regionally. It's not going to be made city by city, because the only way you can try to create a Pareto optimal solution, that is a solution which ensures that those disadvantaged communities that are, say, next to the Bay, East Palo Alto, for example, um, you know, are not disadvantaged, is to, in, is to look at it regionally. And from my perspective, one of the great examples of how a city can actually start thinking about real projects in real time is actually the Port of Redwood City. Because BCDC permitted a new seawall there um, as the first time we've actually permitted by using the Bay Plan amendments that were passed a few years ago that talked about sea level rise and how we needed to actually work through it through a permitting process. And it was a success, and it is a success. So we can demonstrate that we can actually do this. Julian Potter, do you want to?
4: Yeah, um, just uh, I think you've hit on the points on the jurisdictionally. So as I spoke earlier, we're looking at the Bayside, the eight miles, right? But behind us is 101 and the San Bruno Mountains. So we've partnered with San Mateo County, and we just got a grant with the State Coastal Conservancy, working with Dave Pine, a supervisor down there. And we're looking at the alluvial flow off the mountains into the creeks that run north and south of SFO. That, so
1: that's rainfall for those of us who are not water experts?
4: And uh, yes, as the rain comes down. Okay. Because we realize it, it, it can come from all sides. I mean, the, the, the idea of the jurisdiction, uh, the water, they see no boundaries. So that's starting that partnership with San Mateo County. We know that we need to continue our outreach with the transportation leakages, the egress in and out of the airport's going to be. But also the partnership, we have the Coast Guard sits on the airport, uh, and it has an exposure to the bay. So working together with them on what they want to address. We have, you know, South San Francisco, San Bruno, Millbrae, Burlingame, all kind of touch a little bit of the airport. So we're beginning that work. So we, we start with what we know, the airport, and we're moving out and gaining partnerships and coming together to address this holistically.
1: Elisa Gary, was it possible that some people will need to retreat or pull back in Redwood City? And how do you think we're going to make this decision about... What places to protect? If you say that we can't afford to protect everywhere, there's gonna be some tough choices and some pressures on places where there's lower property values, lower income areas.
2: I can give you a perfect example of what's happening right now. We have an area that we're studying, a precise plan, it's the Inner Harbor Plan, and we have um, liveaboards, we have a dock town, we have a marine science institute, we have Bear Island Aquatic Center, we have rowing, Um, Stanford rows there, Palo Alto Club rows there. We have all of that happening, plus you have the, the port nearby and development and cargo. So you're looking at all of these things happening. and you see, This is a great opportunity where we're involving all the stakeholders, and as, as was mentioned, it's not only the, the stakeholders in Redwood City or San Mateo County, but also regionally that will benefit from this in deciding what does that inner harbor want going to look like? Is it going to be recreational? Are the boards still going to be there? Um, is similar to South Salito, is that what we want? Because of affordable housing, so they're screaming and yelling affordable housing, where the recreation area wants to keep it open, do we do more wetlands? I mean, there's all these decisions to be made and the developers are part of the conversation as well as the county. So there's a perfect opportunity there to say, do we need to retrieve or do we need to protect or what is it that we're going to do? Because it's an opportunity, very few opportunities that we have left in the Bay Area to do something that's forward moving and that will benefit the region.
1: So it sounds like people want to do more development. Uh, We have a basketball team that wants to do a big new pier uh, arena on the waterfront in San Francisco. Uh, Larry Goldsman, are we going to see more big money development on the coast? And if so, what's that setting us up for?
3: One of the things that we all have to recognize is that people believe that if an asset is placed close to the bay, it has greater value. And, candidly, we can all agree with that because we love the Bay. But one of the things that BCDC staff and BCDC commissioners recite as a mantra is that that should not be seen as simply what you do. That is, the Bay is not a lost opportunity for what you can do on land. And so the public policy process, which is, you know, pretty difficult and pretty hazardous to get through, basically says that there are special conditions that you have to meet in order to build within BCDC's jurisdiction. The short answer is people will always want to build near the water. I think that's probably just part of our DNA after thousands of years. And they will want to live near the water. The question that we have at BCDC and the regional agencies have to figure out is how do we ensure that as the water rises, Economic vitality and our community's vitality continues to grow albeit in a way that we can't forecast Because we don't know what this place is going to look like in a hundred years much less 200 years when our grandkids and great-grandkids And so on are there, but the water will always be something that we want to be next to
1: Laura Tam I heard someone uh, who's an expert in this area talk about waterfront development will be permanently temporary that is the idea that uh, that goes to, like that was Will Travis uh, who used to be at, at BCDC. The idea that this sort of permanence along the waterfront, it's more of a, of a campground thing. I mean, I'd like to have your thought about our relationship with the water and whether we ought to be still build, building near it. Laura Tam?
0: I mean, I think we think that Things that, there's a lot of things that are already right next to the water that are worthy of protection. We're gonna have limited resources for protection, right? We can't protect everything. We have to kind of have this regional conversation play out about what are the things that are important to us as a region to protect. Maybe they're the airport, maybe they're some wetlands that are otherwise gonna drown. We have to figure out where, that, where those resources are gonna come from. And then in terms of thinking about things that we may choose to put on the waterfront that don't exist there now, Those things have to have a design or financial strategy for dealing with sea level rise because if they anticipate being there for the next 30 years, next 100 years, they have to anticipate that they need to do some planning around projected future sea level rise. I don't think we as a public should stand for any project that wants to be near the water that isn't planning to protect itself in some way because there's limited dollars to go around for the things we already have. So that's one thing. And I also think, you know, you kind of can think about planning and how much effort you're going to put into design and financial strategy um, to protect yourself, depending on what kind of thing you're building. If you're building an airport runway, you want to build something that's really tight. You want to make sure that that's going to be around. You're you're planning for the 1%, as Julian said, the 1% event. If you're building a, a... a park interpretive center, maybe it's something that could be moved inland in a few decades. Maybe it's something that's temporary. So you should be adopting the sort of design strategies and the the cost profile that best suits the type of thing you're trying to build.
1: Laura Tam is Sustainable Development Policy Director at SPUR. Our other guests today at Climate One are Julian Potter, Chief of Staff at San Francisco International Airport. Larry Goldsband from the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, and Alisa Aguirre, uh, member of the City Council in Redwood City. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Alisa Aguirre, let's talk about paying for this, where the money's going to come from. Uh, you're someone who has to look to the voters and say, look, this is going to cost more to protect Redwood City. What are the ways that we're going to come up with money to protect the shoreline in a political environment where people don't like taxes?
2: How are we going to do it? You know, we're already doing that in Redwood Shores, which many people don't know is Redwood City. And they've already self-assessed themselves of parcel tax in order to not only create but maintain the levees in that area. So that's one idea is if you have construction, you have housing near the water, then you're gonna pay for making sure that you're sustaining it. We don't even know the amount that it'll cost, the billions that we're. if we lose what we have or in order to protect, and so, in speaking with the engineers and speaking with the builders, the developers, the same question: it could be billions. It could be you know we would have no idea what it will cost to protect what we want to you know build or what we want to add, and so those are the unknowns. But when you do have something like Redwood Shores, where you have the the residents there saying, you know what, we want to protect this. We're willing to tax ourselves. So that that will be a parcel tax. It has to be organizations and like Metropolitan Transportation Commission that has a lot of funding to work with areas of transportation and infrastructure, and now they've added housing. And that's a very important aspect. So we have to look at all of those pieces. I don't think it's just taxing ourselves. I think it's also looking at what all of these organizations can do together, and I'm just talking about one, but that has MOUs with many others.
1: So that's one example. It's contrasts contrast with what happened up in Belvedere where some people said, you're in the flood zone, you've got to buy insurance. They kind of think people went crazy up there. No, we don't want to pay for it. We want right. government to do it, et cetera. Larry Goldsman, what are some of the funding mechanisms? Where is this money going to come from, these unknown billions?
3: Well, not only <laughs> do we not know where the money is going to come from, but I think we also have to take one step back because that money is going to pay for a bunch of different kinds of things. And one of the things that I want to make sure that that the audience recognizes is that we can talk about levees, which are made of concrete. We can also talk about levees that are made of dirt. And we can talk about marshland. And we can talk about increasing the amount of wetlands within the bay at specific places, which can in the near term actually absorb much of the energy and in the near term help prevent the storm surge and so on. But that's really expensive. And one of the things that we have to learn how to do better as a society is place a value on natural ways to do things, which is candidly not very easy to do. And one of the things that I'm excited by is that, for example, at BlackRock, they're this you know very large investment firm, right? Well, they have a very much a growing practice of natural capital. That is, they have clients who want to invest in fixed assets and get a fixed return, but want to do so by investing in projects which are environmentally friendly. So I think that there are ways to think about this beyond the simple discounted cash flow of passing a bond measure and throwing cement into the water.
1: So (laughs) some of this capital may come from the private sector, not just tax and government.
3: I think that it's going to end up being a melange of forces that are going to ultimately ensure that the communities are protected and, and it's going to be private, it's going to be public, and it's going to be inventive.
1: Julian Potter, you have the situation where you can basically just tax airlines and passengers, right? You have a, a revenue stream Exactly. Uh, I mean, what, these people who use the airport are willing to pay for the airport, presumably.
4: Somewhat. Uh- <laughs> One thing I think you have to, we have to think about is the airport as part of a national aviation system, right? We have 45 million passengers a year. That's, you know, 175,000 people a day go through the airport. 30,000 people work there. It's a big operation, (laughs) and it's connected worldwide, right? So this is not a problem for San Mateo County because of its geographic location where we are, nor is it for San Francisco because they own us. You know, this is a national asset, and we need national leadership. And I know we, we seek that on many issues. But one area that I can point to is the runway safety areas. Congress passed and said that every airport shall have a runways with sufficient distance to accommodate any aircraft that might slide off the end of the runway. We're in the middle of that construction. It's a $200 million program. Well, Congress mandated it, and the FAA funded it, 70-30, we're paying 30. So I think there has to be some sort of a partnership, because you look across the country, and you have New Orleans, you have JFK, you have LaGuardia, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, L.A., San Francisco. We're all in the same boat here, and these are assets that, you know, are, are, are worth protecting, and so... We're not waiting for the federal government, as I told you. We're investing now, and we're, we're reaching out with partnerships. But I think we call on Congress to, uh, to help protect these assets.
1: Is that realistic in this political environment?
4: Well, I think if they were willing to uh, invest in these runway safety areas, uh, yes. I think it's going to take time, as all you know, government processes do, But I think because it's an aviation system, if SFO has a problem, that's a problem all over the country. I mean, planes go down in airports everywhere. So the economic impact is not singular to any one site. So everybody gets impacted by it. Whether or not you're near water, Chicago will be impacted by it. Any of these hub cities, worldwide you are. So I think because of the disparate impact, you know, a lot of people are gonna feel the pain if they feel that these assets aren't protected. So I think we, we meet with our trade association, and, and it's, uh, it's something we've put on the map. And uh, we started with, you know, first with uh, looking at carbon uh, mitigation and, you know, how can we reduce carbon? And, you know, the airports were working hard on that, but that's not going to solve the problem we know.
3: Can I add an example to Julian's example? Mm-hmm. Um, We, in California, have a tendency to look at California as at least a couple states, the coastal state and the Central Valley. What many people don't recognize is that a startlingly large percentage of the crops that are grown north of Bakersfield that are exported are exported through the Port of Oakland. So those ships you see in the bay, carting to and from, docking at the Port of Oakland, many times carry product that employs people in Redding or employs people in Tulare County. In addition, something like 98% of the fertilizer that's used in the Central Valley comes through the Bay and goes up the Stockton Channel. So it is in the best interest of all of California, whether you touch the Bay, whether Mm -hmm. you see the Bay on a daily basis, to actually invest in the Bay for economic and environmental reasons. Let's talk about uh, seismic because we haven't talked about earthquakes. Some
1: people would say earthquake is a more immediate and real risk to us than sea level rise or climate change, which is ephemeral and abstract and and apparently slow moving. So uh, I looked up some statistics recently about quarter of the people in the Bay Area are prepared as the Red Cross says they should be. So Larry Goldsband, adding to seismic to this, how does that factor into it?
3: Well, there are a couple ways you can look at scenarios in the bay. There are probably many more than a couple. We've been talking about the combination of, you know, the Great Sandy, our version of Sandy, the big storm that comes in. You know, it comes in at a king tide in January, so, you know, the whole place floods and the water's coming from both directions. But there's another, just as perhaps likely, if not more likely scenario, which is that the next Loma Prieta, which is larger than the last Loma Prieta, comes on by And all of a sudden, you have wreckage where there were once earthen berms, which means that the South Bay gets flooded. And lo and behold, the same thing happens in the delta. So all of a sudden, you lose a key, a levee or two in the delta, which means the valley gets flooded. You have water flowing, you know, wherever you can imagine. And so there's a scenario you really have to look at as well. And so when we take a look at scenario planning and we take a look at how we envision the bay, What we really need to do is make sure that we take into account all the different types of hazards that can come right beneath us. Laura Tam, San Francisco recently has upgraded the Hetch Hetchy water system that was largely
1: uh, seismically driven because of earthquakes. Now San Francisco is reminded by these signs in the buses that they're going to soon upgrade. Uh, the sewer system in San Francisco, how is that going to be done in a in a way anticipating sea level rise? Are they, are they doing a good job?
0: Yeah, I would say the our water and sewer agency, the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission, has been really thinking about uh, climate change in, in many dimensions, as it has to, uh, thinking about sea level rise with respect to the sewer system and will we be able to keep um, keep it flowing. I keep it, yeah, <laughs> uh, thanks. Um, and, and as well thinking about the impacts to our water supply because, of course, with climate change, we're expecting to see warmer winters, potentially less water like the historic drought we're having right now. Uh, we expect that maybe we'll have something like uh, 70, 70% less snowpack by the end of the century on a regular basis. So the PUC and other water agencies in the Bay Area, I might add, have been doing a lot of work to model the potential changes to snowpack and rainfall, and what will that do to our water supply, um, as well as starting to think about how can we upgrade this, the infrastructure we have in the ground to be prepared for not only earthquakes, but sea level mm-hmm. rise.
1: So if San Francisco is doing a good job on its sewers and Hetch Hetchy, help me understand Mission Bay, where it's liquefaction, landfill, right on the water, billions of dollars of new buildings being put uh, right in flood zones. And
0: is anyone thinking about sea level rise? Laura Tam? I would say that they're aware of sea level rise. Um, (laughs) Sea level rise is a you know it's we it takes 20 years to plan and build anything in San Francisco so we weren't thinking about sea level rise 20 years ago when we planned and permitted Mission Bay. So that said, Mission Bay has a lot of qualities about it that enable it to be readily protected. They have a lot of new uh, property owners, a lot of new um, tenants. So there's the ability to do what Alicia was speaking about earlier, the infrastructure financing districts or people taxing themselves to pay for protection. There's also a pretty clear area of waterfront where Mission Bay is potentially exposed that could be protected with a levy or something else. So I think it's a, I think it's an opportunity more than a risk, and it's definitely important for San Francisco with uh, the, the housing situation and the, that we have right now. And let me say affordable that, I, I
3: apologize, let me say that no. j- just in defense of Mission Bay, to some extent, the city of San Francisco is working with BCDC and a couple outside partners on a special study with regard to Mission Creek and that whole southern area there to try to figure out how it can best adapt as a community. And that's really the important thing to think about, as a community.
1: Uh, one contrast, just one second, is, is, uh, is Hunter's Point, where now we know about sea level rise, and Hunter's Point is being built at 55 inches, and they're planning all sorts of storm drains, and sea level rise is very much on the radar from the beginning at, at Hunter's Point, whereas it clearly wasn't at Mission Bay. Julian Potter.
4: Yeah, I was just, you kind of brought up an interesting uh, note when looking at earthquake preparation, right, for the seismic stability, and have we finished that. Right? I mean, that, that, that's a big problem that we know is real. And we still have a lot of investment to do there. And, in fact, at the airport, we're just uh, finishing and be another year, year and a half, uh, air traffic control tower. And the reason being, it wasn't seismically stable. You'll see it as you go out to SFO. There are now two towers out there, one under construction. It will be another 40 feet higher. That cost about 100000000 million. We're also uh, underway of building Terminal 1 which is the oldest terminal out there now. And it is sinking with the liquefaction. Mm. And so that will be a huge uh, multi-billion dollar project. So at the same time, I think you have to know that, you know, there's still significant investment that we're doing in terms of being in an earthquake zone. So don't jump too fast to the rising tide.
1: Uh. (laughs) Well, this is a matter of of personal interest. The Commonwealth Club just bought a building on the Embarcadero. We're going to move there next year, so we want to (laughs) know. My office is on the third floor. Um, <laughs> we're talking about sea level rise in the Bay Area with Alicia Gary, former mayor and council member in Redwood City, Larry Goldsband from BCDC, Julian Potter from San Francisco International Airport, and Laura Tam from Spur. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Larry Goldsband, tell us about Goldilocks. <laughs> tell us the story of Goldilocks.
3: Well, there are these two little kids. Um, <laughs> One of the great things that BCDC did under the great leadership of Will Travis, who's in the audience, was to really start the discussion about the rising bay. And one of the great things that was part of that was the creativity that was associated with it. And BCDC held a competition that was international about what are the really interesting, even if they're not realistic at this point, ways that we can deal with the rising bay. Well, that, of course, that happened a few years ago, and the talk has continued. And one of the ways that this talk has continued has been manifest in the idea of putting a series of locks underneath the Golden Gate Bridge, therefore Goldilocks. And yeah, there you go. Well, my last name is Goldsband, and, and, and I've been called Goldilocks for how long? And I don't have any hair. Um, that's just the way it goes. So I figure it's just being named after me. Um, But one of the things that really needs to be seriously discussed in the Bay Area is whether it is possible, much less wise, to actually stop the water from coming in to begin with in some way in, in an engineering solution underneath or near the Golden Gate. There are huge issues with regard to this, not the least of which are the fact that doing something like that would alter the biological functions of the Bay. But as we look at the Bay, and as we look at what's going to happen over the next hundred years, much less thousand years, it's going to change no matter what. And so we have to figure out what the alternatives are. And one of those alternatives that we have to always look at is doing nothing. Because that costs us as well.
1: I want to ask a a personal question of each of you, Uh, starting with Elisa and Gary. What are you personally doing in your lifestyle to plan or adapt to severe weather, sea level rise, resilience in your own life?
2: Well, you know, um, I really enjoy the Bay, and so I'm enjoying it as much as I can. In my personal life to prepare, I think I am one of the percentage that is prepared for an earthquake and prepared for what can change. I'm also very aware of, of how we grow things in our backyards and, and what type of systems we use. We have a recycled water Plant in Redwood City, and
4: mm-hmm. you know,
2: and think in how we built that, and how it affects the schools and the playgrounds, and so those are the things that I'm that I'm part of. And you know, just to jump off of what um, you were saying earlier, if we had the Goldilocks, and I just want to end that.
1: Yeah, because it would impact San Mateo in a big way. So please. <laughs> well, you
2: know. I'm a rower and and the bay, and so there are times when we get stuck in the mud, and and you know that most <laughs> of the bay, I think it's 60 to 80 percent is uh, not lower than 12 feet. I mean, you can literally get stuck if you don't know the canals to go in on the bay. So the bay is very shallow. And so imagine what would happen if we had Goldilocks and and we're just going to be on sand in all of San Mateo because it's going to take all the water away, right?
1: I'm going to whap you with a a paddle. Okay, let's, uh, Laura Tam, how about resilience in your own life?
0: Um, resilience in my own life, well, I, uh, I try to focus on the fact that we both need to be prepared as well as do what we can to minimize our own environmental footprints. And so I'm a transit rider and a cyclist, and so are my kids, and they're learning about the importance of conserving water, especially now, conserving energy, um, about the value of habitat in the bay and the ocean. And we take field trips with them to show them the great environment that we were blessed to inherit and that we hope to pass on in a, in a sustainable way, so I guess sort of teaching the new generation as well as trying to minimize our own footprint uh, as much as possible.
1: Get them in the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts, those skills are going to be, be useful coming <laughs> ahead.
3: Uh, Larry Goldsman? We have a 10-year-old whose favorite thing to do is go to zoos or go on expeditions in which he can see wildlife, and so we're doing very much the same thing that you are, Laura. We're basically teaching him that this is great as it is now, but it's all different depending upon where you go. And as a 10-year-old, that's sort of an easy thing to get, because we don't look like where, say, Vancouver is in some respects, although we do in others. And he's learning that the wildlife there is different than the wildlife here. And he loves riding BART. And it's a great thing to be able to, you know, to take your kid to work on BART and have him look at 24, where we live, and see the backlog of cars and and say, gosh, we're going 60 miles an hour faster than they are.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Jillian Potter?
4: I'll be honest. I'm happy I have my earthquake bag prepared <laughs> at work and at home. Uh, mm. But most of my effort, you know, falls in my professional life. I can't say that I've changed a lot of my personal actions. I try to ride to work on ride to work day, Uh, ride my bike down to the airport. That's pretty sharp. That's a (laughs) schlep from the city. (laughs) But really, it's um, growing awareness within professional associations, working with the airports, the trade associations, um, our elected leaders, and uh, our employees. We're trying to always do new initiatives to move people onto transit. We actually pay for the BART transit surcharge, the $8 to go in and out of the airport, any of the employees there especially the wage workers we're uh, pushing a transit initiative so that we can give 130 dollars to employees to use transit instead of taking Mm -hmm. their own personal car so you know i'll admit i I don't uh personally i'm
1: well personal resilience is tough because it relies on systems so you can be on a hill but where's your food come from or you can Mm -hmm. stash some food or water but how long is that going to last so it really relies on communities and just wanted to get that in there Let's go to audience questions. Welcome to Climate One.
2: Last year we had a similar talk about the sea level rise where you talked about the levee system uh, and the marshland. So is that plan still on and how has it progressed? Is there any hope we see with that?
3: I think that's Larry Goldsband, Delta levees. Well, it's not just Delta levees. I mean, it's really when you look at the bay, what, what we have the ability to do in various places is to have what I would say is a real win-win situation. I apologize for the jargon. But one of the things that we have to do to make sure that the bay is productive is to dredge. And we have to make sure that there are great navigation channels to allow the ships to get where they need to go. Well, what should we do with that dredge material? Historically, it's all gone out to the Pacific or even dumped at Alcatraz. Well, that has lessened, thankfully, what we really need to do is use that dredge material and place it where it can be used to accrete and to ensure that we have more and better marshland, which can help with the rising bay. Okay. So we're working with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and a host of folks who are involved in dredging to maximize the amount of dredge materials which are reused. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Yes, thank you. ABEG and NPC recently produced uh, Plan Bay Area and it seeks to, to put development into planned development areas. But a number of those planned development areas, if you overlay the A-bag map for what's gonna get wiped out with sea level rise, are in areas that will be wiped out by sea level rise, doesn't say a word about that. A number of those planned development areas are in areas that are subject to liquefaction, doesn't say a word about that. How can a fairly sophisticated regional agency screw it up so badly?
0: (laughs) I I would say that they didn't really screw it up so badly. I think we have a lot of priority development areas, as, as to use ABAG and MTC language, are areas that we already inhabit. There are places like downtown San Francisco, downtown Oakland. There are places that are already good candidates for protection and there are places where there's a whole lot of existing infrastructure and people's houses and jobs where we're going to figure out as a region and perhaps the cities themselves, ways to protect themselves. And so in some ways, if we can concentrate growth in areas where we are already likely to be able to try to fund additional protections, it's a smart strategy rather than sprawling into areas where that will require new protection, new infrastructure, a bunch of other expensive stuff in addition to sea level rise protection. So I would say that it's a much smarter strategy And. And actually it was a recommendation of Spurs several years ago to concentrate development and and plan for taking regional resources that become available for sea level rise planning and focus them on protecting priority development areas. Mm -hmm. Because these are the places that we can contribute to reducing emissions as well, because people are more likely to ride transit and things like that.
3: Let me add to what Laura said in two ways. Number one, um, BCDC is actually working with MTC and a number of different number of different organizations to actually look at those priority development areas and Do the risk analysis and the vulnerability analysis because we think we have to the second thing I'd say is that the next plan Bay Area whatever it's called in 2017 will actually include information from BCDC with regard to how we can have resilient shorelines Let's have our
1: next question. Welcome to climate one
2: I heard that San Frisquito Creek, the the gentleman that's proposing the plan is planning on spending billions of dollars for earthen levees, which if he, just for to Dumbarton Bridge and East Palo Alto, that doesn't consider the other eight counties around yet. Are you considering if you're going to continue bringing in people to this area in times of drought and sea level rise, are you thinking like we are in Redwood City about perhaps floating homes? for development instead of permanent things? And are you looking at more than 30 years, which is just a small amount of time? Because it's gonna continue for hundreds of years. Thank you. Alicia Garrett? I think she asked if other areas are doing things like other than Redwood City. Okay, But I think the planning does go on. In fact, I, I mentioned earlier, the developers are developing at 2070 levels. And so they're already planning on, on that. Laura another, Tam, another are we gonna go all turn
1: into Sausalito?
2: I mean,
0: it, it's, a, it's a possibility. It's that, that kind of development is also vulnerable in many ways And they can't handle a lot of wave action. The infrastructure isn't already there. You gotta put stuff in the Bay. I don't know if that's a good place to put a bunch of new people, but yes, we do have a lot of people coming to the Bay Area in the next 30 years. And um, there's a, there's gonna be a lot of preparations needed on the water supply front as well as on the sea level rise front, as you mentioned.
1: Laura Tam works for Spur. We're talking about sea level rise and climate change. And Climate One, let's have our next audience question. Welcome.
0: We have another threat of sea level rise, which is tsunamis. The biggest source we've got right now is a Cascadia subduction zone off the coast of Oregon and Washington. That is a fault that's very similar geologically to the faults that let go recently in Japan and Sumatra. And that is 90 minutes away from us. And the, the projections, the NOAA projections for sea level rise due to tsunamis on the north coast of the city is 12 to 14 feet. And that would be lesser as the tsunamis make their way into the bay. But it's something that
1: is part and parcel with what you folks are doing. Are tsunamis on the radar?
4: Uh, absolutely. The studies have to contemplate any level of sea level rise through the projections, and uh, so a tsunami, uh, I think that level, whether it be, again, the 100-year flood or the 15 inches or the 55 inches, I think the, the question really is is the, is the timing, right? So we have to plan for them. Whatever we build, we have to build uh, contemplating that in the future, they might need to build on top of, you know. So it's, it's really an understanding of the potential for the worst, And what can we build now to protect today? Can I I make an additional comment on that,
0: too? One of the most important things you can do to prepare for tsunamis is develop emergency plans. It's kind of in the field of warning people to get out of the way and protecting human life. Tsunamis also go away. They recede. Sea level rise is something that is going to happen and remain high. It's going to just keep going up forever. So it's it's a little bit of a different planning framework than planning for something that Uh, will happen, and it's certainly horrifying and scary and we hope doesn't happen, but um, it's certainly a a different sort of planning exercise to prepare for an emergency event versus a long-term emergency.
1: Let's have our next question about sea level rise at Climate One. Welcome.
2: My name is Jade. I'm an intern with San Francisco Office of Environmental Policy and Compliance with the Department of the Interior. Um, We've recently been doing a lot of research on drought, and so I was wondering what are your thoughts on the impact sea level rise could potentially have on drought, such as the flooding of deltas and other freshwater resources.
1: And also saltwater intrusion is a big concern, so who'd like to tackle that one? Laura Tam?
0: I could take a little bit, yeah, I mean, the, I haven't really thought too much about the impact of sea level rise on drought issues, but certainly we talked earlier about levees in the in the Bay Delta and how uh, they protect, there's a series of islands and, and levees that sort of protect some of the most important water conveyance infrastructure in all of California if those levees which are extremely seismically vulnerable were to fail and salt water which gets further into the delta and will continue to as sea level rises if that stuff is able to enter the water intakes right now that that supply so much of not only southern california but the entire bay area much of the bay area as well that water supply could be interrupted to those customers for a year and a half mm-hmm. before it's restored so it's a significant imminent catastrophe in the Delta that we have to prepare for. And uh, there's a a bunch of work going on right now. I urge you all to check out something called the Bay Delta Conservation Plan. It's a strategy to try to deal with that problem before it arises, however, I should also say that it it wouldn't be totally effective for 10 to 20 years. So hopefully the big earthquake doesn't hit before then.
3: And I I would add to that because I think Laura's right on target. The Bay Delta Conservation Plan, which is now being promoted by the administration, is an incredibly important thing for all of us who drink water in this state, which Mm. is everybody, to really understand. Because the delta is a very fragile place. And one of the things that we always have to remember is that the delta really should not simply be called the delta. It is the bay delta. And so remember that the freshwater flows from the delta that aren't captured, say, from the aqueduct, or don't stay in the Central Valley, come right through here and end up heading out to the Pacific at some point, right? And so at the next BCDC meeting in a couple of weeks, we'll have the BDCP people in. How's that for jargon, Greg? BCDC and BDCP. <laughs> so that we can understand how those freshwater flows will actually be affected, So that we can have a better understanding about how that will affect the bay. Larry Goldsbenning's executive director of the Bay Conservation and Development
1: Commission. Let's have our next question on sea level rise here at Climate One. Thank
3: you.
2: I was living in New York
3: when Hurricane Sandy hit, and one of the things that stood out was that there was only one building in downtown Manhattan that kept their lights on is because they had their cogeneration plant. My question is, is that how do the utilities prepare, I mean, if if all of our preparations fail um, and the grid goes down, how does the utility prepare for that? And are there any buildings here in the Bay Area that would be able to continue to operate and keep their lights on?
1: Mm. Sorry, Larry, but used to work at, at, at PG&E, so <laughs> you,
3: that one's got your name on we it. Actu- we actually at BCDC had PG&E and Chevron and a number of other private entities in to talk to us about their preparations. And it's more than just keep the lights on, you know, from, from this idea of a storm. Climate change is going to have tremendous effects on heat. And so how can PG&E understand and prepare for more hotter days? PGE has a tremendously intensive program that they're going through right now to to do just that. Here's my question back to you. If you were to have a storm surge, and one of the other things that happened in New York was the fact that the subways got flooded. Well, we've had BART in, and one of the things that BART said that was really interesting is that two-thirds of all trips on BART either begin or end between Embarcadero and the Civic Center on Market Street. So how is BART trying to prepare? And they have a tremendous program now trying to figure that out, and they have done something which I think is very, very commendable. They have decided that anytime they do a capital improvement project, basically no matter how large or small it is, they throw in the analysis of sea level rise and climate change and try to figure out how they can, over the long term with that project, help better their system.
2: And to add to that, what cities need to do and are doing is looking at their infrastructure and the investment of that and make sure that not only it meets the requirements of sea level rise but all the seismic activity i know that's what we're doing because a lot of our infrastructure goes through we have a lot of creeks in redwood city that we need to and sometimes with development you have to kind of move things a little bit i mean most of the city's infrastructure and sewers are more than 50 years old and so you have all of the issues and all of the leakage and all of the water running out So as cities uh, look at their budgets and look at their infrastructure, they have to now look at not only um, seismic precautions, but also sea level rise. And that's part of that big regional picture.
1: Lisa Geary is a member of the Redwood City Council. Let's have our last question in Climate One. Welcome.
3: Uh, Good evening. My name is Steve Lynch. I drove down from uh, Davis. Um, As I drove down, I listened to a podcast called Sea Level Rise that had John Englander in it. John Englander uh, talks about whole cities disappearing, Miami will become an island, um, and that, and so he, right the, the feeling I got from that one was that a lot of these measures we're talking about tonight will be too little, too late, so uh, Greg, you're quite involved in this, I'd like to hear what your opinion is in contrasting tonight's program with that one. Uh, well.
1: John Englander's in the audience, so John, you can ask him. <laughs> he uh, was here recently, uh, so thank you for being like here, John. Uh, if the question is being science-based, we have lots of different programs, lots of different guests over, over time. If the question is that we're not thinking dark enough here that if you buy into some of Dr. Hansen's research, et cetera, that the sea level rise is going to be a lot greater and faster than we've been talking about tonight. There are some very credible people who think that those scenarios are plausible and that we're not thinking bold enough, fast enough. If that Greenland ice sheet goes, we're gonna see some, and Richard Alley, who is another uh, Climate One uh, guest here, works on abrupt climate change. We may not be thinking big enough. Uh, that I'd like to know, a close here uh, by Oh boy, we could go dark or we could go light. Let's go light, uh, <laughs> and think about some up notes here. Some, some. Uh, let's end on an upbeat note here, so we don't send people off to to drink and depression here tonight. So, uh, Julian Potter, what, let's think of an optimistic note. To end optimistic
4: on. note. Um, we're ready. We're. Uh, <laughs> 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 That's an optimistic. No, no, really. In, lo- in looking at the runways and in looking at the airport, you know, we are doing things today to, to help prevent, but we're also planning for the future. Um, you, you sometimes see maps where the airport is underwater, uh, and I'm here to tell you that has not happened. Uh, we do have the walls up, and we are uh, putting steps in place now. And we're looking at what can we immediately do to clean and to resume operations. I think that's what's most important about an airport. It is an outdoor site. Uh, We are used to weather and how do you get operations back up and going? We might be down, but as you said, the water will recede and trust that we'll, be, uh, we'll get the operation going.
1: We, we have to end it there, and I guess what oh. we just heard is that when the bad one happens, <laughs> you can get to the airport and get out of town. So <laughs> uh, we have to end it there. Our, our thanks to Elisa Aguirre, former mayor of Redwood City, Larry Goldsband, Executive Director of the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, Julian Potter, Chief of Staff at San Francisco International Airport, and Laura Tam with the San Francisco Planning and Urban Research Association. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming and listening to Climate One today. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd, and editor is Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future.